This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 21st, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. We're joined today by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, an infectious disease physician whose studies of HIV include many of the seminal works on the cost-effectiveness of prevention, screening, and therapy. As Chief of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital, she was instrumental in coordinating efforts in Boston and in Massachusetts to combat the COVID-19 epidemic. And at the beginning of this year, she was named director of the CDC, taking over our national health agency in the midst of crisis. Today, we want to discuss some of the pressing issues facing the country and the world today. But let's start with some recent publications. Today, we published the report of the phase three trial that led to the registration of ad 26 cov 2 s the vaccine produced by Johnson & Johnson. So how does this vaccine work? Steve, just to review what we've said before, this is an adenoviral vectored vaccine that uses AD26, a relatively uncommon human adenovirus, to carry the gene for the viral spike protein. While there are other adenovirus-based vaccines, and even one that uses AD26 as part of its regimen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is very distinctive in that this trial tested a single dose rather than two doses. And then what did the investigators find? This was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial that looked very similar to the other phase three trials of vaccines that we've seen before. It studied safety and efficacy of the vaccine in more than 19,000 participants in each arm. It compared the disease rates starting 14 days and 28 days after receipt of either the vaccine or the placebo. They also looked at both early and late adverse events. Importantly, it was a multi-site study that was performed in several countries, and as we'll see, those countries had different variant viruses circulating at the time. So first, the safety conclusions. For the most part, the immediate adverse events looked very similar to that seen with other vaccines. Many participants had local or systemic reactions, and almost all of those resolved quickly. As for efficacy, it worked well, with vaccine efficacy over 66% when measured either after day 14 or day 28. That held up across demographic groups and pretty well across countries, even in Brazil and South Africa, where the variant viruses that we're seeing now were responsible for the majority of the disease. And the vaccine worked particularly well to prevent hospitalizations. Starting 28 days after vaccination, no participants who received the vaccine required hospitalization. So overall, the news was very good and contributed to granting an emergency use authorization for this vaccine and the start of widespread use in the U.S. I mean, Eric, you point out the similarities of this study to some of the other efficacy trials. And I just want to take a step back and say, I think this is a credit to how these studies were conceived and designed. And as you know, I was part of that some eight, nine months ago, where under Operation Warp Speed, the government brought together industry, the NIH, BARDA, and other government agencies, academia, regulators. And this allowed a common framework for doing these phase three trials. Similar endpoints, similar populations studied, similar laboratory assessments, similar statistical analyses. And I think that structure allowed the template to move forward from multiple phase three trials to happen rapidly with appropriate external review input to allow us to have greater confidence in the findings that would emerge. And I think these data that established the ad 26 construct 
sort of followed that path of development that I think has been relatively successful despite all the complexities of COVID last year. In fact, and we discussed this a lot earlier during the uh, outbreak, these sorts of platforms, I think, are a really good template in general for therapy, for prevention, for almost anything that we do with research during an outbreak like this. So I think that this carries some lessons for us, not just for right now, but for the next outbreak that occurs. Last week, though, we discussed the fact that there were rare cases of thrombotic thrombocytopenia in some of the recipients of this vaccine. Does this phase three trial help inform the risk of that complication? Not really. There was a single case of sinus thrombosis among the 19,000 recipients in this trial that occurred in a young man. At the time of the trial, this was not clearly associated with vaccination, and that case was relatively complicated. So it's difficult to know if this represented the same issue that we're seeing now. Steve, you raise an important point about how do we think about what we learn from these studies. There are certain things that this trial afforded tremendous insight into in terms of the efficacy and activity of this vaccine construct in preventing illness associated with SARS-CoV-2. It also was conducted in three different geographic regions. So it shows a similarity of safety and efficacy in different populations. And it also had different viruses that were circulating or emerging to provide some insight into activity against variants of concern. What's very difficult for studies, even studies of this size, 20,000 or 40,000 with placebo recipients to inform us are for less common side effects, for things that occur one in 20,000, 100,000, a million. And that can only be observed when there's larger rollout. And then we have to have the systems in place to be able to identify them. And that's always a challenge with any investigation and new therapy is how to understand the potential of less common side effects. I'd add that in trials, the people who are recruited into those trials often have to make certain inclusion criteria. And there are a lot of people who are excluded because of various reasons from these trials, and they may represent particular risk groups. So until we see these vaccines being used broadly, I think it is hard to assess rare side effects or side effects that only occur in certain populations. Absolutely, as well as efficacy. And we're looking at that now in our immunosuppressed populations or those with weakened immune systems to better understand what is the efficacy side of the house, so to speak, in these very important populations here and around the world. So there's a lot more to be learned even after well-done large efficacy trials. So, Rochelle, given all of this, how does the CDC handle such an issue when it arises? You know, as part of the federal government, the CDC takes these reports of public health problems associated with the COVID-19 vaccine very seriously. We use the VAERS system. This is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and other monitoring systems. And we receive reports from healthcare providers, the vaccine manufacturers, and the public themselves on the possible side effects and health problems associated with and following vaccination. Recent actions like the pause on the J&J vaccine have demonstrated that our monitoring systems are in fact working. They alerted us to a very rare problem, um, six cases in 7.2 million vaccine doses delivered. 
And we had swift action and collaboration, CDC with the FDA, to get the word out to the public, to get the word out to healthcare providers so that they can recognize and diagnose and treat appropriately if these health issues arise. Rochelle, I'm curious about the roles of CDC and FDA, the relative roles of each of these agencies. I assume you work together with FDA, which obviously is responsible for approval of agents, but how does it work? How do you divide up responsibilities? We work very closely with them, and I've been on many a call with the FDA, has have my colleagues over the last several days. You know, the FDA does a lot of the regulatory work, what the EUA, what the patient information sheet has to say, what the warnings might have to say um, when these events occur. CDC's role is really to see who and where these vaccines should be utilized and to assess the risk to gather this independent panel, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, to see where we should best be using this vaccine given all of the other parameters, such as other vaccines that are available. You know, when these vaccines received emergency use authorization, I was skeptical about how well post-rollout surveillance would work. And like you, I'm very impressed with the VAERS system and its ability to detect a very rare event. How does the CDC pursue a better understanding of these cases, uh, mechanism, important risk factors? Do you have the tools to be able to properly define and understand what may be going on here? I believe we do. There are several factors that we need to take into play. Whether these reactions are similar to what has happened in reactions associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine and working collaboratively with our colleagues in Europe who have seen similar reactions and trying to understand what they have learned, they have more cases. So we're working closely and trying to learn from our international partners as well. Here, one of the things that we really wanted to make sure of, and the reason for the pause, was to see if these cases were actually being identified, whether people were notifying us through the VAERS of every thromboembolic event that was associated with this and thrombocytopenia. So whether we were identifying all of these serious thrombuses that were associated with thrombocytopenia so that we could see if any more cases were coming in. I think somebody at the ACIP meeting said it really well. Um, Did we find needles in haystacks or is this the tip of the iceberg? I think all of us very much believe that we have needles and haystacks here, but we wanted to make sure that there weren't more cases that really needed to be identified that weren't coming in because they didn't recognize that they were associated with vaccine. The other important reason for the pause is of course that the standard of care when people come in with a clot is not what we would wanna treat this syndrome with. Heparin is not something you would want to use if you had a cerebral sinus venous thrombosis associated with thrombocytopenia in the context of a prior J&J vaccine. So we really wanted to make sure people were aware. Circling back to the issue of population subgroups and risk groups that you raised earlier, one of the questions physicians are frequently being asked is about COVID-19 vaccination and pregnancy. The phase three trials of all of the vaccines in current use excluded pregnant participants although in some cases women became pregnant between the first and second doses. So as of now, there aren't strong recommendations for those who are pregnant, plan to become pregnant or are breastfeeding. This week, however, we had a look at the experience thus far among people who've received the vaccine in pregnancy. What did we learn there? First, I would just want to say that historically, pregnant 
people have been excluded from studies that assess the safety of new medicines and vaccines because of the theoretical risk to the fetus. And this leaves us in a place where we don't have enough information and data to make recommendations for pregnant women. And I think we at the CDC are committed to learning more about how COVID-19 vaccines work in pregnancy. So this paper that was released is really a first peek at our experience and what we've been working to learn. I think the findings of this experience are quite reassuring. Essentially, it was the first 10 weeks of our vaccination experience. And we looked at three different data systems within data that we collect at the CDC. One is the vSafe system. This is the smartphone-based um, post-vaccination health checker. The second was a vSafe pregnancy registry, which is a way that we contact people who have identified as pregnant so we can get good detailed follow-up. And then, of course, the VARA system, the adverse event system. So this paper actually reported on the first 827 pregnancies that have occurred in the first 10 weeks of vaccination. And I think that the results are actually quite reassuring as the proportion of the pregnancy outcomes, such as pregnancy loss and health effects to the newborns, are really quite consistent with what we'd expect in the background rate of the population. So this study adds to a growing evidence confirming that pregnant people develop a robust immune response to COVID-19 vaccination without so far seeing any adverse events to the mom or the fetus. So the number of live births in this group is still pretty small. Are there other data that can help pregnant women and their physicians decide on whether to vaccinate or not? Right. So we reported on 827 pregnancies, 712 live births. And I want to be very clear that our experience so far is among women who got vaccinated in likely their second or third trimester. Otherwise, they would not have delivered as of yet. So we still have more experience that we are collecting. As of the time of this report, we had about 4,000 pregnancies. And right now, we're up to about 4,500 pregnancies. And we are continuing to follow these women and the health of their babies. Rochelle, I suspect that many of the women in the group that you're looking at were healthcare workers only because they received the vaccine relatively early during the course of the rollout. And they tend to be healthy women who are very connected to the healthcare system. How representative do you think they're going to be of pregnant women in general? Um, it's a really interesting and very true point. So yes, most of these women were healthcare workers. I do think we're going to need to follow this for longer, right? The first 10 weeks is just the early experience. On the one hand, they are biased because as you know, they are health seeking kinds of people. On the other hand, they're biased perhaps because they have an increased risk of exposure. And in fact, that may be why they had chosen, even in the absence of a lot of data in pregnancy, to get vaccinated because of their risk of exposure. So we have every intention of following this longitudinally for quite a while so that we will collect experiences, not just of healthcare workers, but of everybody who's chosen to be vaccinated. Rochelle, you point out one of the real challenges in drug development or therapeutic development which is when we do not know the full safety and efficacy profile of a novel compound, we want to study it in those where we minimize the risk. So we avoid individuals who are pregnant. However, if something turns out to be quite efficacious, then we want to use it in this very important population as quickly as possible. And how to generate high quality data to reassure ourselves, the medical community, and most importantly, the families who are struggling with these decisions, I think this lays bare. 
And how to improve that process is not clear to me, given the challenge when we have all the uncertainty. What the CDC is doing here is a logical way to try and address this. Yeah, and I think we should think about this in three different groups of people that historically haven't had a lot of access to these. So we've gotten a lot of questions among women who are trying to conceive, among women who are pregnant, and then among women who are breastfeeding. And all of those were really not included in the vaccine trials. There's been a lot of advocacy to try and ensure that people have a choice for their participation. And I will say that since the original trials, Pfizer is actually now conducting and including pregnant women in these trials. I do believe we have a responsibility to try and help these women, especially given the data that demonstrate that women who are pregnant have a two to three-fold increased risk of ICU stay, a two-to-fold increased risk of mechanical ventilation as well as ECMO, and then their babies actually have somewhere between a two and four-fold increased risk of adverse outcomes. So given the high risk both to the mom and to the baby, we really need to actively search for data, work on getting data, and report data on the outcomes for these women couldn't agree with you more. And we saw this with H1N1. We see this with the flu annually. Are there things we should do differently going forward to more expeditiously develop these tools for our pregnant population? I think we should advocate to have these pregnant women enrolled in these trials and to create certainly informed consent, but individual autonomy to make the decisions as to whether they would like to enroll. It certainly is true that um, I'm sure when you were on rounds before you went off to the CDC, this was probably the most common question that we got from hospital staff, from the physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers. I'm thinking about getting pregnant. I am pregnant. Should I get the vaccine? And I think you point out something very important, which is that this is a particularly high risk group because these were the people being most frequently exposed to the virus. And just to elaborate on what Lindsay was asking before, Our healthcare workers, they're a high-risk group for any infectious disease because they're the first people likely to be exposed to it. And they are also the group that is most amenable to study. So I think it is kind of attractive to think about our healthcare workers both as an important group to protect and an important group to think about recruiting when we're looking at pregnancy. You know, one point maybe to make here is the real challenge that we're having because we don't have these data. So for example, among the folks that are supplying a lot of myths and disinformation out there, one of the most common ones is that these vaccines can affect your fertility. And we are working hard to combat that. We have no data to inform whether these vaccines can affect your fertility. But there are a lot of people who, having heard that, are reluctant to get the vaccine. Young women who are not even trying to conceive right now saying, what if I can't conceive in years? We have no data to inform that. And of course, we won't have data to inform that for a very long time. But even in the people who are currently trying to conceive, we don't have longitudinal data that'll be hard to assess. It will take some time to assess. But importantly, we have actually no evidence that people should delay or decline their vaccination because they are trying to conceive. And we have no plausible mechanism by which any of these vaccines would affect fertility. So altogether, it's a very complicated time for vaccination. On the one hand, rollout's going very well in most of the United States, but on the other, the case rate continues to increase and more infectious disease variants have taken over. 
All of the recent news about adverse events associated with two of these vaccines have made confidence a little bit shakier. So, Rochelle, what important messages would you and the CDC give to physicians at this point? I agree with you. We're at a really complex time, and we have a really complex amount of information to convey. On the one hand, we're vaccinating at over 3 million people a day. People are interested in getting this vaccine. Over 25% of the population is fully vaccinated. And vaccination will be our best bet out of this pandemic back to a status of normalcy. On the other hand, we have a seven-day average of about 70,000 cases a day, which is extraordinarily high. Hospitalizations are going up. New infections are going up. And so we really have to counterbalance that message to say, while we're vaccinating at a really rapid clip, we still need to be careful with regard to our mitigation strategies, our masking and distancing. And then you now layer on top of that the fact that we have this really rare signal. And what I would say about this signal at this period in time is that we were able to detect extraordinarily rare events through our vaccine reporting system. And that, if anything, should convey a huge amount of confidence in our ability to find very rare events that might be associated with the vaccine. We don't even know if they're associated with the vaccine, which is why we have taken measures to be cautious. Rochelle, I think that thinking back to two months ago when vaccinating a million people a day was aspirational, having over three million vaccines being delivered a day is terrific. And I think the safety system, as you elaborated, is terrific that a handful of events can be identified and allow us to further understand and enhance the safety. One of the things that this pandemic, SARS-CoV, has really pointed out is it's infectious diseases are a global problem, not just a domestic problem. And getting vaccines to all of our community here in the U.S. is so important, but also globally. How do you think about our reaching out to try and stem the tide of variants of concern in terms of the global nature of transmission and the threat that that continues to pose? This country had more deaths than any other country. We've lost more than 560,000 people to this disease. So I think it's appropriate that we recognize we have to vaccinate within the country before we are working outside the country because we've had so much devastation and loss. That said, I think for both humanitarian reasons and global health security reasons, we have a responsibility to look outside of our own borders and to help the rest of the world. And so we, um, as part, we have joined COVAX, this global collaboration to help vaccinate the rest of the world. We've already put $4 billion into COVAX, $2 billion now and $2 billion in 2022, I believe. We intend to work collaboratively across the world to help vaccinate. One of the things I think that's so critically important as we think about J&J, the J&J vaccine, is how helpful that vaccine will be around the world. One of the things that we've been talking about in its use and right now in its pause is who are we not getting with vaccine because J&J is paused. 
there are many people who say, well, we can pause it because there are other options here in this country, but they're not going to be necessarily other options in other countries where we need freezers and we need other things. We need two doses and access is going to be a problem. So we need to understand what's happening here, not just so that we can use J&J here, but so that we can use it around the world. Rochelle, to move from the global to the very local, at this point in the outbreak, what would you have individual physicians tell their patients? I think we should be vaccinating. We've been saying you need to meet people where they are. Um, You all helped train me. And among the things that I was taught was when you give a patient a new HIV diagnosis, um, you listen and you wait and you try and understand what it means to them because it means very different things to very different people. And so you really need to understand where they are. And I think the same is really true for vaccination. When people say they may not be confident in getting a vaccine, they may not want a vaccine, I think we really have to understand what it is about the vaccine that they are hesitant. For what reason? Some people will say, I don't have time to take the day off tomorrow, and people told me I was going to feel sick. Some people will say, I think Operation Warp Speed, that sounds like you move too fast and that the trials move too fast. Some people say, what about those six cases? And, you know, I'm really scared now. So I think this is going to be a very individual decision for individuals. And I think our providers and our community workers have a responsibility to sort of understand what it is that is making people hesitant so that we can really unpack it and explain it to them on the terms of what's making them hesitant. When we had Dr. Fauci on one of our prior podcasts and we're discussing the rollout, he had similar thoughts and was talking about how we need to go into the communities such as drugstores and other community venues. How do we get into the communities where people are, given where infrastructure is today? And not everyone can make it to mass vaccination centers or electronic appointments. There is so much that we're doing in this area. We have set up mass vaccination centers and they have been strategically placed in areas both with high census and with areas of high social vulnerability index. That's how we select where to place them. We CDC partners with FEMA in that. We know that if we put these vaccines in pharmacies, that there are 40,000 pharmacies we can put them at. And by doing so, we can reach 90% of the population within five miles. Now, that's great if you have a car, but five miles isn't so great if you can't access a pharmacy, and we recognize that. We have mobile units that are going out to communities, some stemming from vaccination sites. And now, just several weeks ago, we launched the We Can Do This campaign, working with community partners and the community core to try and reach among people who listen to them. You know, are your trusted messengers NASCAR or are your trusted messengers an infectious disease society? Or, you know, who are the trusted messengers that you work with or that you believe working with the community core? In that context, we've also put out $3 billion to states and uh, locals to reach communities. We want to reach food banks. We want to reach community partners. We want to reach faith-based organizations. And we've also put out about $300 million to finance community health workers, to educate, to provide technical assistance. We are doing this outreach in every way to try and meet people where they are. And I would say we're doing such important work in reaching hard to reach populations, reaching populations that may have not trusted the medical community, that I feel really strongly that these connections are maintained. 
Because once we're done with COVID, or at least out of this acute phase, we have a lot of catch-up work to do in so many areas of public health. We're 11 million vaccines behind for pediatric vaccinations. We've lost control of some HIV suppression. We have hypertension that has not been addressed. So what I really would like to do is make sure as we're creating this community outreach, that it sticks so that we can try and use this outreach again for other areas of public health. Because I think that feeds into another epidemic, which you alluded to, which is disinformation, misinformation. And how do we as a medical health community reach out to communities that are harder to reach with the physical elements of healthcare, but also the informational and knowledge elements? And meeting people where they are is critical. And the messenger is critical. Not everybody wants to get their information from me or from you, right? They may want to get it from their minister or their priest. They may want to get it from, you know, where they play bingo. They may want to get it from where they get their food or their food bank, where they've been getting their prescriptions filled for years. And so we're really trying to understand who the trusted messengers are for all of these communities and make sure that we have partners in those trusted messengers. Rochelle, last week, the CDC launched the Racism and Health page. Can you talk a bit about what the CDC is doing in terms of equity? Yeah, thank you. I was really thrilled to be able to launch this website and to acknowledge that racism is a true threat to public health. And so we are working, certainly in COVID, to try and reach communities that have been more vulnerable to this pandemic. We know that, you know, among all Americans, one year of life has been lost in the first half of 2020, but 2.7 years of life have been lost among African Americans and 1.9 year among Hispanics. This is, of course, true, and we've shined a light on it in COVID, but we know that this has been true in maternal mortality and hypertension control and HIV and so many other areas of public health. So as we're addressing equity in COVID-19, and we're working hard to, and we're looking at our equity data, our race and ethnicity data carefully. I want to make sure that we are actually continuing these efforts to do so in all areas of public health and our launch of the Racism and Health website, our acknowledgement that your health is very much related to where you work, what you do, how you get to work, where you gather, and who you gather with, and that all of those social determinants impact health, and that is the work that we have ahead of us. As usual, thank you, Eric and Lindsay, and thank you particularly, Rochelle, for joining us from the CDC today. 